several years, several diagnoses. In, in high school, I was diagnosed bipolar with psychotic tendencies. Um, over the years, that diagnosis got changed and changed again uh, until I started ending up in the hospital for suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation, wanting to hurt myself or others, which is not me. Um, that's the disease. And a, a lot of people, like you say, when you see somebody on the street, uh, you know, raving about the end of the world, you assume that it's just a crazy person. And to a degree, you're right, but you're a lot of people forget the person there. That's a human being. That's a person just like you. They're just dealing with something that they haven't got control over yet. It's an illness. Sean Dustin spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. Upon release in 2006, he had nothing but the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and legal paperwork. In 2010, he kicked a long-time methamphetamine habit and started the long climb back up the ladder of life. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. If you want transparency and authenticity, you're in the right place. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and this is Sean Dustin. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and I am your host, Sean Dustin. This evening, well, actually, good evening. Uh, I have a couple of things, as usual. Uh, I'm going to add one thing. If you like what the uh, platform that I'm working on, the StreamYard, if you uh, like this and you think about maybe wanting to use it yourself, uh, I have an affiliate link that you'll find in the descriptions. If you use that, you'll get a $10 credit, and I will also get some credit as well once you spend $25. So uh, if you are planning on doing it anyways, uh, if you could hook me up and use my uh, affiliate link. Also, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, go ahead and push that subscribe button in the corner and thumbs the video up. If you are on Facebook, uh, hit the like and share this. And if you are on the podcast platforms, which we'll be releasing tomorrow, do me a favor and hit that subscribe button. Uh, if you subscribe, it actually gives me more visibility on the podcast platforms across the board. So that really helps the show out. Also, if you're on iTunes, you can uh, rate and review. I just got a review recently. It's been about four months since I had one. It was a good one. So uh, if you could, I would really appreciate that as well. Um, as far as anything else, uh, you can... Connect to the show through my link tree, and there's a link right there. All of this stuff is available, though, in the description here with direct links to all of this stuff. So um, any help that you could give, I would appreciate it uh, monetarily or not. Today or this evening, I am talking to Justin Hughes, and Justin is an acquaintance and a colleague from 
the branding hub that we both belong to, which is a branding uh, type of mastermind uh, where we learn how to brand in, about branding and everything else. Uh, he is here to talk about his struggles and his triumphs, uh, being schizophrenic, been to jail, homelessness, and uh, attempted suicide at one point. And finally figured it all out and got stable and is an entrepreneur and has a successful business and uh, a stable life now. So I'd like to introduce everybody to Justin. Hey, Justin, how you doing? Doing well, doing well. How are you, Sean? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for coming and hanging out and uh, spending some time with me this evening and uh, being willing to share your story and your strength uh, for perseverance and, and triumph in your life. Well, glad to be here. I'm glad to be invited on. And uh, hopefully if anybody's kind of going through some struggles, they can see that there is hope. And that's kind of what my story reveals is that there is always hope. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've gone through quite a quite a bunch in your life, and homelessness is uh, one of those things that um, not very many people make it out of once they get into it. You know, it's it's one of those things that you never really see. Uh, uh, you know, the other side of it, and if and if you do, um, it's few and far between. It's just rarely talked about. Uh, we were talking a little bit earlier about some of the stigmas of of uh, you know mental health illness and homelessness. And, and I mentioned that, uh, you know, a lot of the guys, when I think of schizophrenic and schizophrenia, um, you know, I think of the guy in San Francisco or the woman in San Francisco that is walking down the street, just yelling at people or at, at objects. And that's what we think of when we think of, you know, uh, mentally ill homeless people. And it's really easy to discount it when you think of it like that because you're just like, oh, there's no hope for them. And you have a different story to tell about that. Well, yeah, when I was in, um, you know, I was a young man when symptoms started showing up. Um, I had classic messianic delusions, uh, you know, thinking I was the second coming of Christ. Um, started seeing demons when I was around seven years old. Uh, had a, a death, uh, a pet death at seven, and that traumatized me enough to trigger my first round of symptoms. Um, several years, several diagnoses. In, in high school, I was diagnosed bipolar with psychotic tendencies. Um, over the years, that diagnosis got changed and changed again uh, until I started ending up in the hospital for suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation, wanting to hurt myself or others, which is not me. Um uh, that's the disease. And a, a lot of people, like you say, when you see somebody on the street, uh, you know, raving about the end of the world, you assume that it's just a crazy person. And to a degree, you're right, but you're a lot of people forget the person there. That's a human being. That's a person just like you. They're just dealing with something that they haven't got control over yet. It's an illness. And when I see, you know, the, the representation of schizophrenia the, in pop culture, the, the uh, you know, comments about, oh, he's schizo, oh, he's crazy, when somebody's acting just a little strange, um, it, it does make me pause and want to shake people sometimes and say, but he's still a human being because I've got that personal experience, you know? 
so walk me through what what an episode is like, you know, or, um, or walk everybody through that. Well, it, it, there's a couple of commonalities that I had, but, it, you know, it could be something as simple as I'm walking home from a friend's house in, you know, high school and I start seeing shadowy figures around me and they start whispering that they're going to get me. Um, it, it's it's scary. It's frightening to see that as a reality, because even though there's a part of me that knows that that's not real. There's a part of me that understands that it's still such a real experience that I couldn't discount it. I couldn't pretend it's not. I can't imagine it's not there. Um, and it's scary. Uh, a couple of the common ones that popped up throughout my throughout my entire life were visions of me dying. And this was part of the messianic delusion. I had to die for a paradise earth to, to come to fruition. And there were visions of my corpse floating above the, the ground with the voice of God coming out of my slack-jawed mouth. That vision was so clear in my head over and over and over again that it, it pushed me to and scared me from the idea of death, which made it difficult for me to deal with concepts like death when I lost my grandfather or lost a childhood friend, um, those kinds of scenarios. Um, because I had this split view of death as if I die, the world will be a better place. But if I die also, I will be used. Does that make sense? To a certain extent it does. Um, when you talk about, uh, the idea, like being violent or, or having a violent idea, I, I, ideation, ideation. Um, I mean, explain that because, I mean, I know, I know that I've, is it different than when, like, I would say, everybody's thought at one point in time, God, I wish I could, I wish I could just kill that person. You know what I mean? But yeah, it was I'd, not a. I'd choke, I'd choke that dude if I could. That yeah. thought, um, it, it's that thought taken to a, a, an extreme. It's that thought turned into an obsession where you start thinking obsessively about doing that harm. And it gets detailed. The the thoughts, the the images in your head get very descriptive. And it's, you know, the, the couple of times that homicidal ideation was why I was hospitalized was there was a, an episode of domestic violence in both cases. And I felt that I would be justified in ending a life, which I would not be. But there was a part of me that justified it and thought about it over and over and planned and strategized and imagined and, and visualized. Like we learn in the, the positive mental attitude community uh, about visualization and affirmation. Well, this was visualization of a negative circumstance um, that just became a habit until it was so all consuming that I reached out for help and ended up in the hospital. Um, and anybody, by the way, anybody who does deal with mental illness or issues, ending up in the hospital is not a bad thing. Um, it's a place to get help. It's a place to get put on the right uh, combination of medications to be given the right coping skills. If you need help, seek help and don't be afraid to go to the hospital because they will let you out. They don't keep you forever anymore. Okay. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Uh, yeah. at, at least it takes that that. Uh, scary thought out of there um so basically it's you know for someone like me it would be it goes in and it goes out and you forget about it 
and it's like okay, I, that was it, I was never going to do it anyways. It was just a, a, fr- a, 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 a verbiage or, or word 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 vomit out of uh, basically right. basically out of frustration. And you're saying so for somebody like yourself, then it, it just goes into more detail and and the the, the I think the. Uh, the scary the the, thought thought process is yeah. a really big factor to it is it's it becomes the consuming thought okay like you can't focus on work you can't focus on school you can't focus on your day-to-day living activities okay you'll forget to shower because you're so obsessed with this thought of doing harm to yourself or others or this thought of being you know uh, uh the second coming of christ or that the aliens are reading your your thoughts or whatever the delusion is, whatever the thought is that's completely absorbed your entire thinking process, okay, um, takes away from your ability to do other things. So the same thing that that when I was hooked on meth, meth would have that same thing that I couldn't th- stop thinking about. Oh, I got to go. I got to get it. I got to figure out how to get it. Except it, it, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's obsession. Yeah. It, it's obsession. Okay. And, you know, what's funny is that obsession can actually be really good. It can be really good for us if we target it at the right things. You know what I mean? If we target our obsession like I targeted, I learned to focus my obsession into a specific niche in sales, in business-to-business sales. And I got so good at it, I built a business around it. You know, and when we learn to focus our obsession... Um, it doesn't matter if it's the kind of obsession that, you know, people who shop obsessive compulsively or people who play video games 48 hours in a row, if they focus that single mindedness towards a positive goal, it's infinitely valuable. But when we let that obsession kind of run and meander wherever it wants to, we end up getting, you know, it, it, it goes towards bad places and it goes towards addiction and it goes towards shopping obsessions and it goes towards video game obsessions and it goes towards neuroses. I mean, just the idea of somebody who's so mentally ill, they are, uh, you know, non-functional. Most of that is their, they've let their obsessive mind, a naturally obsessive mind go wherever it wants to instead of focusing it somewhere. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So from there you went to uh you, you you were in jail did you so at any point in time did you get arrested dur- during an episode and and it, you know cuz so, a lot sometimes now uh I, I was fortunate not to get arrested during an episode I had a couple of episodes while I was in jail Okay um I had run-ins with the police during uh episodes you know I was arguing with a mailbox the police came to check it out cuz it was suspicious um, things of that nature happened a couple of times, but when I was arrested, I was simply arrested for, um, a, a traffic ticket, uh, that I, I, I couldn't pay. And that was, that was poverty related, which was partially because of the schizophrenia. Cause with the schizophrenia, I couldn't hold down a normal job. I mean, I'd go flip burgers, I'd go work a gas station, but I wouldn't be able to hold that job down. And I, I'd get less and less stable each time I had a shorter and shorter work, work assignment with a job. You know, I'd work three months here, two months there, six months there. Um, and that, that's what led to me being in jail, but jail doesn't do any 
good for the mentally ill. Like it's warehousing is what it is. There's, there's no rehabilitation program. There's no therapy. They don't care. You know, their only job is to make sure you don't end up dead and that they get you to the next place that you're supposed to go, whether it be prison or out when you get out. Um, but it was just like, it, it, it was common to be discarded or dis, uh, uh, I don't know the right word I'm looking for, but it was common for me to be viewed as less than by police in those interactions where I was having an episode. Where at one point I had I had was having the delusion that my brain and my body were separate. Uh, I didn't have any control over my body, and I had cops threatening to kill me for that because it happened in a hospital. And the cops were called because I was uncooperative. And the cops were threatening to tase me while I'm laying on the ground, writhing in in madness. And I see a cat. Yeah, my dog just just dog. came in. Come here, buddy. Lay down. <laughs> All right, sorry Dogs about that. Dogs are great. Cats are great. Uh, animals are, are great for mental illness. Uh, I've got a house full of them. Not so many that it seems inappropriate or crazy. Um yeah, but yeah, it's just it. it I, the first time I was put in handcuffs because I was being transported from a mental health crisis center to a mental health unit at a hospital, I realized that I was a criminal. I would be treated as a criminal for the simple fact that I was mentally ill. Yeah, that's definitely a, a, a shame that that you know there's not a, there's not more education about that, um, and you know that. Mental health. I mean, there's all, there's all kinds of aspects to that. I mean, you know, addiction is a mental health issue. It's not a punitive issue. And I've said this plenty of times that, you know, I think the number one public safety issue should be untreated trauma because trauma is the gateway drug. And from that spurs out everything that we see in the streets and, and, you know, the violence, the addiction, the unwanted pregnancies, all of that stuff spins out a lot of times from untreated trauma. Uh, that's the root cause of a lot of the mental illness that are, you know, whether it's basic mental illness, and I hate to minimize it because it's not minimal, but from anxiety and depression all the way through to schizophrenia, psychopathy, those things come mostly from our research and understanding, mostly from child childhood traumas. Yeah. And I mean, you're, you're right there that, you know, we need to, we need to treat traumas. We need to come up with a way to help people cope with traumas. But when it comes to our legal system, what what we really need is reform so that it's not financial. Because if you, if your punishment for a crime is a fine, then that crime, that law really only applies to the poor because mm-hmm. the rich can buy their way out of it. I spent two months in jail because I couldn't afford to get out. Yeah, I went to jail because I couldn't afford to pay a ticket. I ended up homeless and owing massive amounts of debt to the jail, to the state, because I couldn't afford car insurance when I was driving to and from work. Mm -hmm. The whole thing snowballed into a felony, $7,000 in expenses, and, you know, two months in jail because I made $8 an hour and couldn't hold the job for more than three months. Yeah. That's that's a, a system that is designed to punish the poor for being poor. And that only exacerbates mental illness. The stress of poverty 
every time I was too poor to afford things, it triggered my uh, schizo symptoms more, more commonly, more frequently, because poverty is a major stressor. So that's kind of why I, I started the business that I did that, that led me to success was to help other people grow businesses. And one day, you know, wins Allah and God willing, I'll be able to get something that allows me to teach people to not live in poverty. And, and if we can, if we could do away with poverty, I don't think you'd see half the crime that you see in this country or in the world for that matter. I don't see, think you'd see half the problems that you do. I, I, I really don't, because I think poverty is a root cause. I grew up in a poor household, and that poor household probably contributed to some of the childhood traumas that led to my severe persistent mental illness. One question I have about, um, I mean, you've spent, you've spent time in the homeless population, so what do you feel like they're addressing the problem right by just throwing housing at them without actually giving any kind of, uh, I don't know. It just, it all, it always seems like the answer is, is just to, to build more, uh, you know, um, there are 8 million vacant properties in this country. There is 1.8 million homeless. It's not a lack of housing. It's a lack of affordable housing, or a lack of uh, proper wages and uh, a situation where you've got a lot of people who have very little to no skills, so they're working for very low wages, and rents in their area keep going up, so they can't afford, even on a full month's pay, to pay one month's rent. And it's a situation that, that causes the homelessness. Now, I will say that you do have your career homeless. There's a certain group, a certain percentage of the homeless population that wants to avoid any kind of responsibility. Mm. And that's what they want. They, they'll say, I want a home when I get this job, when I get this, you know, disability or social security check, I'm going to get myself set up. And they will for a month or two, and then they're back in the shelter. And then they'll get straight for a month or two, and then they're back in the shelter. And it's because they don't want the responsibility of, paying bills. Even if they have the ability to, they have the financial ability to, they don't want the responsibility of it. So there's nothing that, there's always going to be some homeless, but I don't think the solution is throwing out, building more houses because it's not a lack of houses. Okay. It's skills training. We need to train these people to fill the skills gap that we have so that they can get work that pays them a, a median wage so that they have a chance at affording a decent life. Because in all honesty, and this is, you know, if you've read the book Nickel and Dimed, no, um, I haven't. It's, it's a good one I recommend. I can't remember the author, but it's uh, Nickel and Dimed on not getting by in America. And if you work at a job for 8 or $9 an hour and you work 40 hours a week and you you go month to month, you can't pay rent and buy food in the same month on the, that kind of wage. And that's what leads to homelessness eventually. That's going to lead a lot of people to end up on the streets or couch surfing or, you know, in situations where they shouldn't be because if you work for full time, 40 hours a week, 
for a company that's making millions of dollars, you should be able to pay for rent and food. Yeah, you would think, right? You would think, but that's not the way it is right now. No. And that's why what I think would help the, the homeless, would help reduce homelessness, reduce poverty, is if instead of teaching basic, well, we still need to teach some basics in school for elementary school, but we need to teach skills in high school. We need to teach actual skills that translate into income because it's the skills that pay the bills. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're, we're, we don't even know what's going to be available in the next 10 to 20 years for people that are going to be going to school. I mean, what's going to be available to you that AI hasn't eaten up, you know, as far as, uh, you know, jobs and opportunities. I mean, I know that the, uh, the construction industry is never going to, um, you know, go anywhere. That, that's a guaranteed job because you can't outsource that to anybody. That's going to take skilled labor. But even that, I mean, I'm in the commercial sector and, you know, you've got all of these, uh, you know, companies that are downsizing now because they can, their employees can work from home. So you're going to have a, a huge, um, I, I, I would say, uh, vacancy of commercial properties now as these, these companies that were occupying three floors of a, of a big building are now maybe one floor or moved out of the building altogether to downsize to a cheaper location somewhere else. Um, you know, and so that's going to cause a, a slump in the, in the commercial construction industry when you're not having new buildings being built, you're just doing tenant improvements. So, I mean, that's going to happen here at some point. Well, here's, here's a funny thing. I noticed this in Tulsa. I was homeless in Tulsa and I was homeless in Denver. Um, I was homeless in two cities, and in both of them, the homeless centers, the homeless area was relatively close to downtown, uh, the, the, the beat, the, the, the hipster district where all the hipsters were coming. Um, and they were building these luxury apartments, and these luxury apartments, these massive, massive luxury apartments, a new one going up every three months, had a 60 to 70% vacancy rate. And yet you're 50 feet above a, a, a group of people sleeping in a makeshift tent on the sidewalk. They're building out luxury apartments. They're building up commercial real estate when those things don't help anybody. The people who want commercial uh, real estate right now, the people who want a commercial office building, like you said, that's going to go down because work from home and honestly, I've already told several people, if your boss has you working from home, you're making less money than you could. I could teach you how to make more money. But that commercial real estate is going to become not so valuable because people can work from home. Yeah. So you're going to go from three floors of a company to maybe a corner office on one floor. And that's going to cause some instability. They're still going to be building commercial real estate, though. They're still building luxury real estate, even though they got a 60 to 70% vacancy rate. You got more than half of those apartments unfilled, but you're building more apartments. It, it doesn't make sense to do that. It's just a way to keep the, the capital cycle running where money's going, money's going between people who have it and other people who have it. 
Yeah, that is true because when you, in order to not have to pay your financial gains, if you roll that over into another investment or a property investment, <laughs> you don't have to pay those financial gains. You're just re, you're just, you're just reinvesting the money. So uh, yeah, you could, yeah, you, yep. that, that's, and you can roll that over for years. You can roll those capital gains uh, over for years by reinvesting them. Yeah. And, you know, you end up, yeah, you'll end up having to pay a little bit of a penalty on the tax. Um, I, I had a tax guy actually break it down for me one time where it's something like for every million dollars in capital that you roll over, you might pay an extra 20 to 30 bucks on your penalties. And you're talking, these people are dealing in tens of millions of dollars, so they're by not paying that tax, they're saving a lot of money. That's one of the ways the rich get richer is tax breaks. And, you know, guys like you and me, the solopreneurs, we try to take advantage of those where we can, but not all the tax laws favor guys who are one off. Uh -huh. You know, they favor bigger corporations. Yeah. Who need it less. Yeah, well, I mean, that's we're seeing that with the CARES Act and all of the the money that you know it got sucked up by the big corporations, but the little guys that needed it got got uh, uh, got shafted. Yeah, they got froze out of it, and you know there, was, there wasn't enough to go around for for them. I mean, granted, some of these huge corporations gave the money back. I think the uh, Lakers gave the money back, and then also, but the, the other ones like uh, Joe Osteen got like four million, and he's a nonprofit church. You know, do you think he gave it back? Doubtful. He had to. He had to buy a new private jet. Yeah, oh, that's I mean, it. Yeah, that was, that's definitely that's a need. <laughs> yeah, it's it, here's the mentality that I see, and it's only at the very top. Like I don't see this very often down the ways a little bit, but at the very top is I've got to get as much as I can get because. If I don't get as much as I can get, if somebody else gets it, then that's less for me. So that's why you have big corporations with CEOs who have, you know, Jeff Bezos got a tax return. Jeff Bezos has a hundred billion dollar net worth plus a hundred plus billion dollar net worth. His guys are working for $15 an hour. They're working to the point where they're in exhaustion. They're not able to take bathroom breaks. He keeps leveraging those people without compensating them, and his wealth keeps going up. Uh -huh. And it's like if you pay them more, you don't get less. The whole world gets less when you pay them less because uh, your spending power goes down. How much shopping do you do when things are tight versus when things are flush? Uh -huh. You know, it's better for the economy on the whole to pay people well because then they'll spend that money. But somebody up at the top forgot that basic economic fact. And that's why we can't even get the minimum wage up to 15 an hour when by now it should be at 25 an hour. Yeah. So the the argument with that, and I've heard this one a lot, and they, you know, the, the, the big argument that everybody always brings up is that if you raise the minimum wage, people are just going to not, uh, they're just going to, automate their their low level or low paying jobs and they're not going to get them anyways or i mean there's always some something that some pushback for for that the two arguments i hear the most often to raising the wage which is something i'm a big advocate for we're supposed to raise the wage 
FDR said it's supposed to be a living wage when he implemented the minimum wage act. But the two arguments I hear the most are, well, it'll just be outsourced or automated. Well, guess what? It's already being outsourced or automated. It doesn't matter whether we raise the wages or keep them the same or lower them. Automation is the way of the future. That's progress. That's what's going to happen. There are going to be jobs that go away. There's no lamplighters anymore. There's no lamplighter jobs anymore. There's hardly any coal jobs anymore. Industries die. That's business. That's how it works. The other argument is that we, if we raise the, the wage, we'd raise the price and the price would go up insane amounts, which is not true because we've seen places that have a raised minimum wage and their prices are not significantly higher. But my argument has always been that if, and it's, it's the same for whether it's automation or whether it's, uh, you know, raising prices, it's, if a person is working full time, if they are dedicating a third of their if they are dedicating a third of their waking life to you, it is on you as their employer to make sure that they have a quality of life. It doesn't have to be a great quality of life. I'm not saying the guy who's flipping burgers should be making more than the the ambulance worker. I think everybody should get bumped up. But the guy who's flipping burgers, even if he's only 18 or 19, he's got bills to pay. He should be able to pay his bills without stressing. The more he stresses, the worse his performance is at work. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's, that's true for everybody. So let's go back a little bit to um, how you... We have meandered a bit. Yeah, yeah. Let's go back a little bit to how you... How you broke free from from those shackles, basically, and how what was the path like to getting back your sanity and getting your mind back to where you could function um, like a, you know, like a regular person? Well, fortunately, schizophrenia is not like at the stage I have it or had it or however you want to look at it. Um I was cognitive of most things most of the time. So I reached out for help. I got with my medical team every chance I got when I got, uh, when I was in Denver, uh, they had a really good medical program for the homeless in Denver because recreational cannabis pays for a lot of good things out there. Um, they got me on the right. They started testing out different medications and we eventually got me on a medication that worked very well for controlling my schizophrenia symptoms. At the same time, I had learned coping skills along the, along the way that once that med was in place, those coping skills became really easy for me to manage. And you take a look at the situation I was in. I was living in Denver, homeless, right about the time winter was about to start and trying to build a business, a work-from-home business without a home to work from, working from the library. And all I could do was focus on it. I shifted that focus, that obsessive thinking that we were talking about earlier. I shifted that obsessive thinking to how do I build this business and get myself off the streets before a Denver winter takes my nose, my fingers, or my toes. And that was a real concern for me. And I think... You know, much like in, in many anecdotes from history, the fact that I was at my last, on my last leg, it was learned to get out of this situation or literally perish. 
uh, literally could have faced death. I, I did what I had to do and buckled down, worked really hard and got myself out of the streets and into more and more stable living situations as time progressed. I've been stably housed now for three years as of the 12th of this month. And it started with a, a little bitty camper trailer and moved into a, you know, a, a nice little split level in a nice middle class neighborhood. And the only thing that allowed me to get there, and I, I, there are a million little factors, but the one key combining thing, key element to all of it was a sense that if I kept going, I would get here eventually. No matter what life looked like, no matter what the circumstances were, if I just kept taking the next step towards my destination and did not give up, I would get where I wanted to go. And that's the reality I live in now to even to this day, if there's a goal and I've got goals, I've got, you know, the COVID has caused my weight to get out of control. I've got weight loss goals. I've started working on those. (laughs) Yep. I've started working on those in the last week and I've done about 80 to 90% of where I should be for what I've been doing for the week for my exercise and my diet routine. But 80 to 90% of good is better than 0%, 100% of bad. I'm making better choices and I'm doing it with the mentality. And we discussed this previous to the show that in two years, I'll be in a totally different place. Uh, yeah, I got to get through today. I got I just got through my workout today before this show. I got to go through my workout tomorrow as well. And the next day and the next day and the next day. You got to take step after step after step. But in two years, I will be in a totally different place than I am currently physically. I will be fit and buff. And I've got that visual in my head of me being, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger body <laughs> <clears throat> in two years. And I'm not saying I'm going to literally have the Arnie body in two years, but I'm going to look a hell of a lot better than I do now. And a lot of people, and this is kind of what I want your audience, you, anybody to understand, no matter what your circumstances are right now, two years, which is going to go by anyways, you're going to go through the two years, but two years of doing something different every day, can lead to a completely different result than where you're at now. If you're working a low-wage job and you you can't figure out how to make ends meet, you start a side hustle, but you do that two a couple of hours every day, you do your side hustle every day for a couple of hours for two years, you're going to be light years ahead of where you are now. You won't need that low-wage job anymore, two years of working a side hustle. That's a, a reality. And... Most people don't think of it that way. They think, I want immediate gratification. I want instant, get it now. I didn't get off the streets in one night. I didn't get out of jail in one night because I was able to, you know, work a little harder, work a little smarter than the next guy. It still took time. But here we are three years from when I was literally homeless to this summer, we're going to be buying a, a, a... significantly larger and significantly more expensive house to to fit our growing family because of the fact that I keep taking the next step every every single day 
And that's all anybody has to do is just take the next step. And plan a little bit too, you know, uh, failing to plan is planning to fail. You know, not, that's where I, I have a hard time with is, is just sitting down and, and plotting out the, the course. I like to keep a lot of stuff in my head, but as I'm getting older, some of that stuff is, is, is not, not staying as, uh, you know, I'm forgetting a lot more these days. So I, yeah. I'm, I'm having to, to do that as well. I mean, I have a pad of paper almost wherever I sit. You know, every place that I sit. So if I need to, you know, someone gives me a suggestion or somebody, you know, says, hey, you should check this out. I, I literally have to write it down now because I won't remember like I used to. Yeah, I completely understand. I write down tasks and I write down task lists all the time, write down ideas all the time. I have a pen in my hand currently just in case something strikes me. Um, but you need a plan. You definitely need a plan. You need a visual of the end result as well. You need to understand what you're, what you where you're going towards. You need a goal, a clear defined goal. You need a plan of action steps to get there. And you need to take those action steps at routinely, regularly, consecutively, consistently. Um, it, it's uh, okay. Perfect example, weight loss. My weight loss routine is a, a keto diet, uh, weight training prior to cardio and weight training and cardio every six days a week. I do the weight training prior to the cardio. I've got my routine mapped out. There's a specific set of exercises I do on any given day, day one, day two, day three. I've got three day cycles. I've got push, pull, legs. I do a routine for each one. There's a plan in place, but once that plan is in place, then it's really just a matter of taking the action. Hmm. And I've seen so many people, especially in the entrepreneurial world, where I, I do some consulting on B2B sales for a lot of solopreneurs and startups. And those startups, they get into the planning stage and they get stuck there because they're constantly adjusting their plan. They're constantly looking at their plan and taking their plan and assessing their plan and redoing their plan, and they never take action. And there was a great book, uh, Ready, Fire, Aim. And again, I'm drawing a blank on your author, so I can't remember. I, I can't remember the author. Um, Not to it, worry. Not to worry. Here was your first one. I'll get the other one. So the first book that she says, Nickel and Dimed on Getting by Not, in, getting, by not getting by in America by Barbara. Uh, Aaron Reich. Aaron Reich. So there's the first one. And while you're talking, uh, go ahead and I'll, I'll pull up that next one. What was it? Ready, Fire, Aim. Basically, the book talks about when you're starting up a, a startup business, um, get a general idea of what you want to do and then start taking action. Get some data from that action. Get some results. And then go back and start planning. Because if you take a little bit of action, it can spur you to keep taking the action. Because that's the biggest hesitancy that most people have is taking action when it comes to selling their first business to business service or, or item, anything that they're selling. A lot of people don't make that first cold call. They never make that first cold call because they don't understand. You got to make 150 of them to get a few appointments that might get you one chance to sell your thing, but you got to take the action. If you don't make one call, you're never going to get that 150 you need to make your sale. Yeah, 
Yeah, that makes sense. I'm I'm right there right now too with my nonprofit. I've I've you know I'm in the planning phase of it, but I'm almost in paralysis right now because I'm like, oh man, I don't know how to do. Like I'm not a business person. Uh, I got all these things that I got to you know be a business guy now, and I, I'm like having an issue with it. I'm having to reach out to people and ask. Um, I, we have a question here from Brian. He says. When did you realize you had schizophrenia or did something happen where you suspected it? Well, like I said, I was seven years old. Um, I had a cat die. Uh, a kitten died on me. It got accidentally got caught in the dryer and that wasn't good. Um, that night I saw a demon for the first time. I saw a demon running circles around me and my brother, um, and there was a part of me that suspected at that, even at that young age, that this was not um, really a demon, that this was my head and that whatever was in my head was wrong, was broken. Um, I, I had mental issues from that point on. I had anger issues, uh, suicidal, you know, thoughts and, and actions, uh, uh Arguments and, and hallucinations, arguing with things that weren't there, uh, talking to people that weren't there long past the age of imaginary friends, and was taken to doctors. Uh, when I was 16, I was diagnosed bipolar type 1 with psychotic tendencies. That initial diagnosis just kind of got rolled, but once I got started treatment for that, that was kind of the process where we started to see, okay, this is what it is and this is how we treat it which took until I was 26, 27 before they diagnosed it as schizophrenia and started the treatments for that. And the treatments didn't even start working until I was in my early thirties, like 30, 31. So hopefully that answers your question, Brian. So is this one of those things like you have the, uh, the bipolar disorder and, you know, they, they get on the medication and, you know, they're starting to feel good and they're starting to feel normal again. And then they're like, oh, I don't need this. I'm, I'm better. And well, that's really typical of bipolars. Mm -hmm. um, that was not the case with me. I would take the medicines and sometimes they would work for a little while and sometimes they wouldn't work at all. And if they worked for a little while, they'd stop working after a while. And if I missed one dose or maybe two doses, because, I, you know, when you're mentally ill, you're notoriously bad at. Think, doing things like taking medication, um, you know, I miss one or two doses and then the withdrawal symptom would be worse than the symptoms that I was having to begin with. Uh, you know, they trigger full on psychotic episodes that would put me in the emergency room. Um, but it was it, once I got on the right medication, once I found the right medication that worked for me, um, I, 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 I take it. I swear by it. I would not stop taking it if it tripled in price and, you know, was harder and harder to get. I'd fight for it because it does add so much value and functionality to my life that, you know, my life is completely turned around in the last three years, partially because of going on this right medication. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, I mean, yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, all right, well, if I if I if I don't, then I might, you know, the risk versus the reward, right? The risk of not oh, yeah. taking it is is you know, risking losing everything and all the work that you've done to this point to get where you're at. 
Well, I ended up, you know, when I moved to uh, Topeka, Kansas, where I live now, I ended up with a, a meeting a girl who had two kids. And so I ended up with a ready-made family. And the last thing I ever want is for that ready-made family, especially those two kids who are six and 10 years old, to see me having an episode. Mm. It would be traumatic for them. And I'm trying to prevent childhood traumas, not trying to be the root cause of, you know, anybody growing up with a drug addiction problem. If my kids end up on heroin, I've messed up. I'm not going to mess up that bad. So I just... I, I take the meds because there are negative side effects. There are downsides to taking this medication. But the downsides are minimal compared to being free of the voice of God in my head telling me I have to die. That is a worst case scenario to me is the voice of God telling me it, you got to die in order for mankind to have peace. I don't want that voice anymore. I don't want the responsibility of being the Messiah yeah. and getting a shot in my arm once a month takes that responsibility away from me. Does that? Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes absolute sense. Um, so did you struggle with addiction while you were out there at all? No. Um, fortunately uh, I, I mentioned a, a family history of addiction in some of our communication. My uncle was a meth addict. My dad, my stepdad is a meth addict. And my uncle at one point pulled my brother and I aside and said back when in the 90s when he was on heroin, um, he pulled us aside and said, look at my life. I'm an addict. Look at everybody else. They're not. Make up your minds for yourselves. Mm -hmm. And like I've even had therapists go, you've been surrounded by meth your whole life. Have you ever been curious to try it? My answer is no. I've never seen anybody's life get better once they start that. <laughs> so I managed to avoid addiction with a family history of it. You know, my mom and my grandpa were both alcoholics and my uncle got into any drug he could get into. And I managed to avoid that problem. I don't drink. Um, I, I just quit smoking cigarettes. Cigarettes were my biggest addiction. Um, cannabis man manages my uh, epilepsy. You know, that's a little bit. And no, no history of hard drugs, no history of... Um, even, you know, pills. I, I don't even, when they give me the, the opioid pain meds at the dentist for my tooth problems, I, I might take them the first day. I'll switch to Tylenol after that. Yeah, well, probably. So I got lucky with that one. Yeah, probably a good thing. You're not missing much, I'll tell you that much. Oh, I, I, I <laughs> having witnessed it, I, I know full well I, what I'm missing, and I'm glad to miss it. Well, that's great. I'm glad you didn't have to deal with that. Uh, so let's go to a couple, couple more things. Oh, we got another comment here. Let's check. Uh, Brian responds. Interesting. Thank you for sharing. I've had a hallucination four times in my life of a green colored spider crawling on the wall and it disappears. It's been over 15 years since I had that though. See, I'm wondering if that could be a stress induced psychosis or a specific incidence of psychosis because um, there's all sorts of things that can cause a temporary psychosis, uh, things like hallucinations, delusions, and acting out, um, stimulants can cause them. Uh, so can stress, uh, times of high stress. It's not uncommon for people with no underlying mental illness to see things that aren't there. Yeah, that's true. I, you know, when you talked about the first, uh, you know, seeing the, the shadows and stuff like that, I, I've gotten that, but it was induced from not sleeping. 
and being yeah. on, and being on meth. And you know, after about three or four days of not sleeping and not eating and being dehydrated because you don't drink a whole lot of water either. Um, oh yeah, you know, you, it, your brain snaps and hallucinations are really common under those circumstances. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I didn't like it at all. Um, the stimulants, even the meth itself, can cause hallucinations after a while because. Almost everybody you'll ever hear a ghost story from drinks coffee. Hmm. Really? Because even coffee, long-term use of coffee, can lead to mild hallucinations. And every ghost story I've ever heard was somebody who drank re regularly drank coffee all day long. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, when you see the thing on the side of your, oh, got to be somebody yep. there. Uh, I get it. All right. All right. So let's go to the last of the things that I got. Uh, thank you for everything so far and your candidness and, and, and being as honest as you have been, uh, with your situation and your issues. I definitely appreciate it. And hopefully the listeners appreciate it as well. Uh, let's go to the book suggestion that you made. And that is The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Gibran. And tell me about that book and why you suggest it. Um, that book changed my life in a way that only, I think, a, a religious text could have. Um, it is basically a, a, a new thought book, which is a, a newer, like, 1920s uh, sect of Christianity Um but it, it basically it follows the prophet as he's leaving, and it's an unnamed prophet. It doesn't specify which religion this prophet comes from, and everybody's asking him questions. And some of my favorite quotes come from this book, and it rings so true with me that I, I disregard the the other religious texts because they're dogmatic and they're they're you know, and especially with religious illusions, it's difficult for me to get into religion. Um, but this book, some of the, some of the quotes are like, uh, tell us of love. What is love, but uh, an angel who wraps you in its wings and pricks you with the sword underneath. It, it gives you a lot of really profound truths in really beautiful poetic ways. And I highly recommend it for anybody. It's a really easy read. It takes, you know, less than an hour and a half to read the whole book. Um, but it's just beautiful poetry and a beautiful way to look at the world. Oh, that's awesome. So check that out. Uh, the Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Or Gibran. We got some podcast suggestions here. I've heard of Tim Ferriss, uh, but I don't know what he talks about. I've, I've heard people suggest him, though. Okay, I first found out about Tim Ferriss from a book called The 4-Hour Workweek. Uh, he wrote it, and then he wrote two more, The 4-Hour Body and The 4-Hour Chef. Uh, I've read every single word he's written on that. Um, he is an optimization and a life-hacking guru. Um, but The Tim Ferriss Show is probably one of the most intelligent podcasts, uh, aside from this one, of course, uh, <laughs> that I've ever listened to. Because he he delves into a wide variety of topics, but it's a lot of how you can improve your life and how you can improve your personal experience of the world. And then Smart Passive Income, um, anybody who understands finance and economics understands you need a passive income. Smart Passive Income will give you some ideas on how to get a passive income. Because if you're working for your money, you eventually want to stop working and then the money will stop coming 
unless you have passive income. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I keep hearing about funnels too. Uh, and I think I have some, uh, there was a guy that was trying to uh, help me out. And I think this would probably be the only way that I would do it. I wouldn't pay uh, somebody, I don't think, to, to teach me this. But this person was going to help me, you know, get some some passive income streams and, and do it through funneling. And the only way that he would make money is if I made money. So he yeah. he had an incentive to help me get to where I need to. And then by doing that, you know, he'll get a percentage of whatever it is and teach me how to do it in the process. Oh, yeah. Funnels are valuable marketing tools. Um, they're uh, they're a buzzword now, but they're ancient as ancient as any mail order um, marketing thing. If you ever if your grandma got dolls from mail order, it came through a funnel. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, grandparents used to get all kinds of stuff like that. I remember yep. that. Yes, you're right. They they have been around for a while. All right. Well, that uh, we're about 55 minutes and we're right on time here. Uh, if you want to connect with Justin, he's given me two uh, social media links. And like I said, you can find links to all these things, direct links where you just click on it down in the description. But I'll go ahead and show you here. His Facebook uh, profile is that right there and if you want to catch him over on linkedin uh his business uh, uh linkedin profile you can catch it over there like i said you can find everything down in the links below uh is there any uh last things that you want to uh i'm real about? friendly if you want to send me a friend request on facebook and chat me up i i will chat you up just don't do it at inappropriate hours because i like to sleep <laughs> i really like to sleep yeah, I do too. I mean, I'm, it's going to suck when I when I have to go back to work and and I don't have my naps anymore. I like to sleep so much; it's the first thing I do when I wake up. I wake up, I go to the bathroom, and I come right back into bed and go right back to sleep for at least another ten minutes. So, it's my favorite thing in the world is is a good night's sleep. So yeah, I, I do appreciate you having me on today. All right. Well, hold on a second, and uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, take us out of here. Um, I don't have another one of these scheduled for a little bit. I've had uh, quite a few in the last uh, week. I think maybe three of them in the last week. So I think we are good until, let's see, we've got uh, the 28th. So that's uh, Thursday the 28th. I have another one scheduled at 7 p.m. So uh, until then, unless I get somebody who schedules something before that, uh, we will see you back then. And we're going to pull us out of here. Let's get to this one. All right, guys. See you on the next one. You've been listening to the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. Sean is a single dad, a union blue-collar guy, and he spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. When he was released from prison in 2006, all he had was the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and some paperwork. Since then, he's turned his life around and shares the struggles and successes on this podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope you were moved to connect to the show. Book a guest spot. For merch, Patreon, PayPal, and social media links, go to linktr.ee slash nowhere to go but up. On Instagram at nowhere to go but up now. On Twitter at but up now. On the YouTube channel at nowhere to go but up podcast. See you next time.